Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings. Phil's Monday morning quarterback on a bird fight. Matt weighs through 150 years of anthropology. And hold on to your seats, we have our first debate. <laughs> you never know, right? Yeah. It's handy to look over. Yeah. <laughs> My water broke three hours ago. <laughs> is that? Oh, no, that's not a possibility, is it? Um, no, it's not. Actually, she told me today that um, I don't really have to worry too much about, about this. Like, I can actually podcast kind of like up till like, you know, a week before or whatever. Like, okay. we can podcast a little bit. But, but isn't uh, it the thing that babies like come early? Um, they do, but um, labor doesn't usually uh, progress in like one hour. That's like more of a movie trope because it's a... Uh, like, you know, it sometimes happens, but uh, I'm only, like, realistically, like, 30 minutes away. Yeah, If I don't I'm go not... home in, like, rush hour or something. Yeah, and I'm not uh, sure I want to be sitting here when you get a call uh, saying your wife's going into labor and I got to rush you out the door. Because what's going to... What gonna... do you mean? What, are you worried that we're going to cut the freaking podcast no, short? No, I'm not. I'm not... <laughs> no, I don't, I don't give <laughs> he's a like shit. A, he's a cold podcasting producer. He needs to get the content <laughs> out. Yeah, when, once the studio's He's up, like, come gotta... on, man. We got 10 minutes left on it. No, no. What I'm saying is like, if I'm with you and you get the call, chances are I'm going to be uh, in a, my red sports car flying in front of you <laughs> with like my lights blinking and honking and like, I'm just, I'm going to escort you to oh, the yeah, hospital. You're going to be the chaser. Yeah. The chaser vehicle. The chaser. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll take, I'll take the speeding. I'm going to catch you. a drift. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, catch a drift. I'll, I'll take a speeding ticket for you. I'll create a little drift action. Yeah. No. So how's the, uh, how's the house living? It's, it's weird now. Like I didn't see you for like more than a week maybe. And then like now I've seen you like twice in three days. So I it's know. Like, and this so is what's new, man. I like, think this is my fifth podcasting episode this week. Yeah. It's like <laughs> some sort of uh record. Eh? Uh, for me it is. Yeah. yeah. This is, uh, I'm, I, but you know, it's, it's been really nice. Mel, uh, my wife has been away, um, a little bit. When wifey's so, away, podcasters will play. <laughs> well, that, and that actually rhymed. Yeah, I'm, I know. Uh, oh yeah, it was Thursday when we did ours because I was yeah. like, oh, toga Thursday. You're like, it's hot up here. I'm like, I'm going to wear a toga. <laughs> yeah, it's been warm. It's been nice uh, doing a little bit of work around the house, whatever. Uh, but podcasting a lot. Did a couple with Aaron. Yeah, how did uh, that go? Phenomenal. Yeah. So the, like the, two in total now? All right. One's yeah. published and then one's one's like going to come out, and we got another one uh, almost uh, ready to go. So, oh, wow. uh, like you yeah. recorded like two or one and a half, like like one and a half. Wow. Yeah, at yeah. this point, and that was um, late night podcasting too. We we're up till two thirty a.m. doing it. Yeah, it was really nice because we were able to have the window open, oh, and uh, so anybody who is a podcaster or has podcasted or has sat in on a podcast knows that the rooms that we do these in are extremely warm. Like I, I never thought of like the blankets on the wall being, cause that's like our setup here. Pull yeah. back the fourth uh, cur- blanket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reveal the fourth. blankets, Matt. Um, but yeah, we have blankets on the wall. I never thought of like the insulating, like warming effect, but it's like basically like we're in like a room size sleeping bag. A room size sleeping bag. And we typically do it in the afternoon. And that's when the sun hits the side of the house. <laughs> so like we have all the factors going against it's like us. like a sweat we, box. Like we need to have the windows closed, the curtains pulled, uh, blankets on the walls. There's padding everywhere. But... I'm going to put you on the spot, Phil. Oh, describe the smell when we come in to record like the cold intros. 
Um, after we've done the main hunk, like after we're like one hour deep and we're coming in to be like this week on semi-intellectual musings. Uh, I would picture a field of wildflowers and then the prettiest rose that you could imagine just <laughs> sitting on the tip of a stem. That's what the room smells like, Matt. Because, you know, as the saying goes, um, men smell like roses. Yeah. Yeah. No, well-known we, saying. We're, we're, we're two uh, pretty clean guys, I would have to say. Yeah. You know, we're... As podcasters go. Yeah, as podcasters go. So, like, about... I haven't seen you for two days, so has anything happened up in and around the property uh, in the last couple of days? Like, uh, not a whole lot. Was... I saw the clovers growing. Yeah, clovers coming in nice and slow. Um, <laughs> no, there's been some squirmishes out back. Uh, wildlife. Uh, squirmishes? Yeah, wildlife at our place love to get into little mini fights, sometimes bigger fights, sometimes yeah. brawls. Really? Yeah. Like, so, what kind of wildlife? Like. Uh, Yo, know, it can be anything, uh, raccoons, uh, skunks, uh, birds. Yesterday it was blue jays, crows, and these other little, like, uh, almost look like sparrows. Like little bullshit birds. The little, yeah, the little sparrows. And anyway. So like what happened? Yeah. Tell us. Well. Give us the, uh, the play by play. Oh boy. I don't know how interesting <laughs> this is, but. Uh, I find, I find it interesting. <laughs> I want to know more. Uh, Who okay. <laughs> so the crows follow the blue jays around because I think the crows want to rob the blue jays nests. The blue jays came in to rob the sparrow's nest. So now you got uh, a bunch of sparrows. Like I'm talking like maybe 20, 30 sparrows losing their shit. Uh, These blue jays. spitfires. Yeah. These Mm. blue jays came in uh, to rob the nest. And there are maybe like uh, maybe 10, 15 Mm. of those. Mm -hmm. And then about an equivalent pack um, or gaggle of crows. Gaggle. Um, It's a gaggle. I believe it's a gaggle of crows. Murder of ravens? Murder. Oh, maybe it's a murder of crows. Murder of crows. Point I don't know, whatever. Nevermore. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so then the crows started like attacking the blue jays who were attacking the sparrows and like the fight kind of was in the trees, maybe like 20 yards from where I was standing. So who were, so, okay. So the crows were following the blue jays and the blue jays were attacking the sparrows. Yeah. Wow. It's like, uh, like the old lady who swallowed the fly. I don't yeah. know why she swallowed the fly. Yeah, I don't so, know why she um, swallowed the fly. So who were you rooting for and who uh, came out on top? Well, it wasn't like that. What? It, no? wasn't, it wasn't one of those. Were like, you rooting for peace and harmony, you little pacifist, <laughs> after the protest songs? Like, now you're just turned into a pacifist on me. Just, uh, you know. Come for, on, I was going, I'm going for the Blue Jays, quite obviously. The, well, the Blue Jays are little shits, man. Of course they are. Uh, little <laughs> shit disturbers. Even in professional baseball, that's actually our reputation. That it's is kind of like true. shit disturbers. <laughs> that is very true. Let's go uh, uh, bat flip or something. Yeah. Uh, no, like the crows are annoying because they're big and they're loud. The blue jays are annoying just because they piss everyone off. The sparrows are annoying because they shit everywhere. So, like, I, do, I really don't care about any of these three wildlife. Um, what I find interesting is when that is going down, like, I don't really notice what else is around. But I can just picture, like, the red-winged blackbirds mm-hmm. or some other, like, you know, other ones sitting up in the trees just being like, look at those assholes. Yeah. Like, look at how uncivilized they are. So, so you got mad respect for the red wing. Black birds. The, yeah, red winged blackbirds. I got those mad. look really cool. You see them on the golf course all the time, like yeah. flying around. It's yeah, like, we we have a lot of them here because we have lots of water, lots of lakes and streams and stuff, oh. and they tend to stick around those areas. Uh they are very neat. Um yeah. So anyway, enough about my backyard. Wait, wait, wait. Who who won then? Like, what what was the final result? There is no I don't think uh I don't think anybody like if anybody lost was the sparrows. But I don't think the blue jays nor Yeah, the sparrows are losers. Well, they'll relocate. The blue jay proved itself to be uh, jerks, and the crows are opportunistic. Yeah, 
Okay, so like it, it, like status nature quo, balances like, itself out. Eh? No, like no one got stomped out. Like it was just kind of like uh, they just played to their own characters. Huh. You know, no one lost their 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 street corner on this one. Huh. But I will keep you informed of other fights that happened in the backyard. Yeah, there yeah. Are, there are lots throughout the summer. Okay, cool. I'm looking forward to it. Well, it'll be a recurring segment in the intro. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> how, how have you been the last couple of days? What's uh, is there anything new with you? Um, no. I got nothing, man. Like I, I'm, no? I'm thinking like straight up no. Like I, I prepared for this podcast a little bit, like touched up my notes and uh, been sitting out on my deck. We got some new gravity chairs. Like, do you know what those are? Oh, sweet. They're like, you sit on it and like kind of like it reclines in a smooth way. And um, yeah, I'm just been sitting out on my deck and uh, looking at the pool that I haven't swam at yet, but our like building's outdoor pool is finally open. So I'm going to take the wife down there and do some swimming maybe this afternoon. Do you, are you a swimmer? Do you like swimming? Uh, no, I am not a swimmer. I am a sinker. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've always been that way. Like when I was a kid, when I was like well past the age that you should have water wings, um, my mom to get them off of me would deflate them a little bit and then take one off and then like deflate the other one and then take that one off. And I had to like wean myself off water wings, like over a span of an entire summer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had the same thing with training wheels. Like I'm a, uh, I think for I'm, a guy with 20 concussions, I'm actually a very cautious person. Yeah. But it's no, weird. I've seen you just, move around. You're pretty cautious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but water, like, like the, those little water wings, I would say that it took me a while to shed them as well. Yeah. And I would, uh, I would venture a guess. And uh, if any of my family's listening, please correct me on this. Uh, but I would venture a guess that it was a neighbor that got fed up of seeing me come over in their pool with water wings that <laughs> eventually was just like, no, you're up and you're not. We got to make a off. man out of this yeah, little like, boy. Take, take, take those off. That's hilarious. Well, I think uh, fear of water, uh, like I got a small fear of heights as well. I think yeah. those are reasonable fears to have because if you fall from a height, you'll die. If you sink in water, you'll drown. Like it, they're reasonable. It's not like I'm also terrified of zombies. Like that's, that's irrational. Really? Oh, I'm, I'm, that's. My like, biggest fear. Like, like you like, wake up in cold sweats. Yeah, like or? even you talking about like uh, Walking Dead or whatever yeah. on like podcasts kind of like creeps me out. Really? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. It's my one like real rational fear. Wow. Have you ever saw a zombie? Um, yeah, like we have that fucking zombie walk that goes through Ottawa. I've seen oh, it twice because yeah, right, I used yeah. to live down in downtown area. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was terrifying to me. Yeah. Even though there's just people dressed up, it really creeps me out. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, I find uh, with some things like that, like I, I'm really freaked out. Um, of those, uh, I think they're called like shadow men or, mm. um, what's that? It's, it's kind of like this, uh, like tall, lanky black figure. Oh yes. Yes. Um, yeah. You see them in dreams sometimes. They're in like, exactly, the corner. Yeah. yeah. And, Just sort um, of watching. like I never really was freaked out cause I would like, you know, watch the documentaries about the paranoia, paranormal and that kind of stuff. And, yeah. uh, like none of that freaked me out until one Halloween, there was a guy dressed up as one. Oh. And, uh, it was like really, really well done. Mm-hmm. And he was just lurking. Like oh. he wasn't going door. Like he was just like hiding, like under a tree behind bushes oh and God. just kind of freaking everyone out. And it's so scary because it's like seeing a shadow of a person at nighttime. Exactly. That's what yeah. makes it so yeah. disturbing. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, Albert Camus, right? The stranger. Oh, tell us about that. <laughs> On another podcast. I will. Right. That's like my uh, little uh, sneak peek into the existentialism podcast that I'm going to like bore you all with in, uh, sometime in the future. Well, <laughs> welcome to the show, folks. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings, uh, co-hosted by yours truly, Philip Primo. And Matt Sanderson. It, Semi-Intellectual Musings is a podcast that puts in conversation the social sciences, humanities, and arts into your everyday life. And we do it through book reviews. We do it through our honest opinions of works. Uh, we've done, uh, past episodes, 
most recently on protest music, which I felt was a good way to put a published uh, work into conversation with everyday life. Uh, we've done uh, past episodes on mental health, on concussions, uh, where we looked at some articles, uh, reviewed those, and talked about our own experiences. Uh, really what we try to do is take that deep, dark bookshelf or vinyl shelf, <laughs> uh, the ones that could seem intimidating, uh, put them on the table in front of us and talk to you about it. Yeah. Um, and like, for example, in today's episode, I'm going to do like a primer on anthropology. It's like going to be real surface, but it's like kind of what I would do in like the first tutorial of an Anthro 101 class, kind of give a big, like probably too big of a sketch of uh, kind of uh, what you need to know about the discipline before you can actually start listening, uh, learning about it. Right. So I figured it's a perfect time to do it right before my hiatus. Well, before we uh, get into the show with that, I'm going to tell everyone how they can get into contact with us. We are on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can email us at semiintellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com, where you will find the history of the show. Uh, we are on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on Google Play. We're on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, please subscribe to the RSS feed. Give us some ratings, some reviews. Uh, make sure to comment on our episodes. It really helps us along. We've been putting this out on a one-hour format twice a week uh, for the last little while. We might have to go to once a week, but if we get enough comments asking us to keep it at twice a week, uh, you know, I can I can arrange things. I can make that happen. Cool. You yeah. ready to start? Let's get on with the show. Try to love you with all of my mind. I'm the soul challenger. I'm the road Hey everyone, welcome back. Uh, Matt and Phil here on the show. Matt has prepared, uh, I think, a really interesting um, kind of overview, um, kind of segue into the discipline of anthropology. Uh, so Matt's going to kind of teach us and teach me a little bit more about anthropology, but I'm sure I'm going to have lots of questions and I'm sure uh, this might actually be the first episode that we get into a full-flung debate. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, we, I got a Foucault drop later on that uh, Phil has already got his backup about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, why don't you uh, take it away, Matt? Lead us into this. Uh, okay, thanks. Yeah. Um, so as Phil says, this is going to be like very much an overview. Like um, there's so many more names. It's very much like our protest um, um, episode where there's like so many more artists that we could have talked about. Same deal here, but this is kind of designed to give somebody who has never taken an anthropology class before a bit of an introduction. And it's also like how I designed it was like, this is the um, way I would explain it to like a first year class. So um, without further ado, I'm going to talk about the basics of what the discipline is, like theoretically and sort of philosophically almost. And then we'll get into the history, then do some methods, then more history, and then kind of wrap up with like, what is anthropology today and what, how do anthropologists do ethnography today. And we'll be talking about kind of how anthropology is applied at the end, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a really important uh, point that uh, we'll definitely talk about for sure. Sweet. Um, so like quite simply, uh, anthropology is the study of human culture, right? Now, every anthropologist has their own definition of culture. I have my own that I'll offer. And I also kind of like this uh, anthropologist Clifford Geertz's uh, definition of culture. It's a very common one that many um, teachers will use in their classroom. Um, so, 
But that being said, anthropology is a study of human culture. Um, archaeology is a study of um, cultures in the past. Physical and biological anthropology is the study of culture through human remains, believe it or not, and the, um, I guess, the residues that are left behind, like our garbage and things like this. They'll do, like, chemical analysis and kind of reconstruct life that way. Um, and then there's also linguistic anthropology, and that's uh, obviously language anthropology, so studying culture through language. And so cultural, physical, biological, linguistic, and archaeology are the four fields of American anthropology. And there's this division. There's American anthropology and then what's kind of loosely called continental anthropology, and that's like anthropologists from, believe it or not, Britain and France and Germany and Scandinavia and the rest of Europe. Um, so uh, the divisions nowadays, and we'll talk about this more at the end, are not that like set in stone, but in the past in anthropology, they were quite taken quite seriously. So American anthropology is four fields. Um, continental anthropology is, um, has a strong linguistic focus. It's a little bit more structural. Um, but we'll dig into the divisions and the differences um, in much more detail in what's come. Uh, well, in Canada, do we practice more American-style anthropology or continental? It's kind of interesting. At UBC in British Columbia, I was trained in very heavily American anthropology, and they took it quite seriously. Like, there wasn't even a sociology department like to speak of. Like, there's a small one, but they didn't even talk to sociologists there. Um, but at Carleton... It's more continental. It's more like sociologists like Phil and anthropologists like myself totally get along. We have beers together and we exchange ideas. Yeah, we don't hate so each other. So our theories and our methods are kind of like blended because of that, right? So um, continental anthropology, I actually never really thought about this before, but it's more like blended socio-anthropology. Um, so, um, but anyway, we can get way more into that, but that's just like briefly what we are. Um, so as I said, language is very important in both, uh, branches of anthropology. Um, in American anthropology, um, they follow, uh, this, uh, pragmatic linguist, they call them, um, Charles Sanders Pierce, who was active in the mid to late 1800s. And in, um, the continental stream, they follow, um, De Saussure. Is that, is that good enough, Phil? Saussure? Yeah, the Saussure, yeah. Ah, there, better, yeah. even better, even better. Um, so Saussure was uh, a Swiss uh, linguist, and um, his way of doing linguistics was um, more like binary. Like they, um, there's the, um, the signifier and the signified, right? And Charles Saunders Pierce had more of a, it, it looks like a triangle, basically, right? And so it has a three-part. Um, so the signs are always related to something else. Um, and it's part of a three-part system, as I said. There's a sign, the object, and the interpretant. Um, so because the Americans follow, or American anthropology follows Pierce, um, there is always meanings in the actions that we do, because he's a pragmatic linguist. So the meanings um, in language uh, come about by speaking, or by communicating, let's say. So uh, when, you, when you're talking to us about this, uh, this is how historically the discipline uh, of anthropology has been formed, like mm -hmm. uh, kind of how academics have taken it up. Yes. See, there's um, a number of like disjuncture points where these two branches split apart, but um, this linguistic one is like very clear that like American is more pragmatic and the continental system is more like systematic, I guess you could say. Um, so that's just one of many ways to see and many ways that they divided early on, right? Um, and, but now obviously, and we'll get to this later, but 
in our interconnected world, like these sort of, um, you know, disciplinary divisions, they aren't as rigid anymore. Like it's just not really that productive to like set up walls. It's better to like jump over the walls and exchange ideas. Right. right yeah. And I think more and more we can see uh, interdisciplinarity entering um, pretty much all academic fields. So mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's not surprising for a, a discipline that studies culture uh, to go out of its uh, or, or original kind of, um, I guess, influencers. It, look, it's uh, like cross-cultural exchange, essentially. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? it, well, uh, yeah exactly. And you would yeah. be surprised for a bunch of social scientists. Sometimes social scientists can not be the most social people in the world. So as I said, um, every anthropologist has their own definition of culture. Um, and I, like many others, have my own. Um, but Clifford Geertz has a really clear one. Um, so he says... Um, describing culture, and it's a very famous quote, man um, is an animal suspended in webs of signification. He himself has spun. And avoid, uh, sorry about the problematic like masculine pronouns there, but um, um, man is an animal suspended in webs of signification. He himself has spun. So what he's getting at there is that humans create their own meanings. Humans are the generators of culture rather than, and what made his break so significant is that um, other, like the structuralist anthropologists, and we'll talk about, they'll start with culture as like a thing that is like imposed upon you. Whereas Geertz and the Americans will say that culture is in action. Like it happens all the time and it's constantly either being reinforced or challenged. So would another way of saying that um, be that the meanings that exist in our world are socially constructed? Yes, for sure. And also, Geertz would go so far as to say that the meanings that anthropologists construct about those people who are doing the constructions are just constructions themselves upon constructions, right? And Geertz, and we'll talk about this, comes from a linguistic background. So he's very quotable, but he's also like, the quotes are buried in there. So I got another like really nice quote that sums that up. Go for it. Um, What we call our data are really our own constructions of other people's constructions of what they and their compatriots are up to. Sweet. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's just, there you go. So my definition of culture, and I just sort of refined it this morning before I came up here, and that's what anthropologists do. Yeah, and that's the thing, because the definition of culture is so amorphous, right? And that's what makes anthropology so um, adaptable to so many different contexts is because you're just like, when you have a starting point that is like like a vapor, you can just sort of apply it anywhere, right? So, right, yeah, yeah. So I don't know how this sounds because I haven't spoken it out loud, so we'll see how this goes across. Um, so my definition is the meanings ascribed by individual actors and imposed upon them by others, generated through lived cultural experience and reflection. Um, well, it's like a little bit of a, a chewer, right? And something I didn't mention with Pierce, but these signifiers, symbols, signs, um, this is almost like, these are what I mean by meanings. Right, right. right. So this kind of dovetails in what, to what we call dialectics. Um, dialectics can almost be contrasted against binary. So the structuralist that we'll talk about in a little bit um, would take a binary approach where they're like, you're either, let's just say, I don't know, like you're either a man or a woman, right? Or you're either an adult or a child or something like that. You can't be both. Whereas dialectics is more of a blended thing. So um, the American stream of anthropology, it's a little bit more dialectical. And I know... Karl Marx has like a different definition of dialectics. Yeah, that, that, that's a very, uh, once you... Loaded like, in a weird way. Yeah, because like dialect versus dialectical. Oh, that too, yeah. There's a difference. Yeah, for sure. So um, 
Okay, actually a better dialectic is like the ethnographic experience. When you go to another place and work with other people, you're sort of, you're part of your own culture, but you're trying to adopt their culture, their, let's say their language, their practices, their ways of like going about the day. So as an anthropologist in the field, you're almost a living dialectic where you're part of your own culture, but you're almost like somewhat getting to be part of their culture and you're in this like in-between liminal space. So almost like the this kind of a weird tangent, but I don't know. So dialectics in anthropology mean more that you're trying to add complexity to your description. Uh, okay. Okay, so two dialect. there's many dialectics that we use in anthropology, but two that I used in my research that I thought were really compelling um, and that add a lot of description to your ethnographic descriptions um, is the dialect of, of space and time. Right. So the idea is that people move through spaces over times, like quite simply. Right. But as I said, my pragmatic approach in American anthropology would tell us that as you're moving through space over time, you're investing meaning into those movements. And now these meanings can be in the moment. I, le I lend room for like in the moment reflection. Um, some other anthropologists would say that all the reflection you do on your um, meanings uh, happen after the fact, right? It's almost like reflection, I guess, right? But I actually give some like room for spontaneity. I guess you can can describe it in the moment, um, uh, yeah. but but also like the experience of space and time. Uh, to use two kind of the the examples that you bring up mm. uh, necessitate a sort of spontaneous uh, reaction in those particular moments. Otherwise, moment. yeah. you you're not in space or time. So to understand that you're in a space requires uh, both a reflective uh, capacity to say, where am I, uh, where have I been, where am I going? But it also requires uh, this kind of prospective capacity, which is what's going on right now. Um, now, I think semantically we could argue that, you know, to understand where you are right now requires like that millisecond of a difference yeah, yeah. um but there's, and that's usually what the arguments at like conferences or whatever come down yeah to. and i think that's like a, a little bit of a it's just semantic pedantic yeah. Yeah, argument yeah. Uh, i think um the more interesting kind of way of looking at it is i think how you've uh, explained it to me anyway in the past is that well if you're in a space um time has a different meaning and mm. sometimes at a different time a space can have a different yeah. meaning like um space and time are both contextual like time is contextual to the space you're in, right, space yeah. is contextual to the time that you might be experiencing. And you can never fully be out of space or out of time. Um, this is existentialism and this is a future episode, I think. Um, that's like the main like theoretical tradition that I used in all of my research at the graduate level. And that's one of their premises is that you can never fully be outside of. And when you are, then you're dead. Basically. Basically yeah. And that's why a lot of people say that existentialism um, is um, like bleak or something, or it's like morbid because they're fascinated with death because it's the end of existence. It's the end of being in space and time. Supposedly, but I've never experienced uh, it myself. Well, but then isn't it fascinating near-death experiences? So um, that's uh, for existential uh, philosophers, um, documenting near-death experiences, or with Merleau-Ponty, it was the amputated limb that you feel like you still have the limb there. It's called the phantom limb. Um, stuff like that where it's like there's a nothing there, but then you feel like there's a something. So like our experiences of experiencing is predicated on our experiences. <laughs> 
um, <laughs> which is like, and we'll just, there you go. There's a big thump in there. Yeah. Um, but if we're always in space and time, we're always in space and time with other people. Even if you're alone, you are like in a state of being without other, right? So another essential dialectic in anthropology is self and other, right? So. Okay. Walk us through what those mean. So. I think we mentioned on a previous episode, but self like is a big kind of concept. And so is other, like I have in my notes here, other is capital O, right? Because that means like another person, right? Um, but then you can also feel othered as well. Like when you are in a new cultural context, either as an anthropologist or just as a traveler, you immediately feel othered. Like, you know, like whether it's just social norms where it's like more polite to stare at somebody or you just stick out because you don't look like the people around you, you immediately feel like, oh, I am not of these people, right? So these processes of either feeling like you belong to the group, that's a selfhood kind of feeling, or that you're a part of the group is otherhood. So this is where anthropologists now will talk about like the experience of refugees and immigrants, right? This is a big thing of when do you feel like you're actually part of the community? Can you ever fully be part of a, your non-native community and things like this? Another word that seems to come up in relation to other is outsider. Mm. And I think uh, I prefer the word uh, outsider mm. uh, because it relates back to your space and time uh, kind of dimensions earlier. So an outsider mm. is outside of space or outside of time. That's a really good point, man. I've never thought of it that way. Go, continue, please. I'm yeah. So, excited. yeah. So I think like, uh, how I, like, I, I'm not, I'm not certain I agree with, um, the, the your definition that these things are dialectic. Mm. Uh, I think, um, I, I would prefer to reserve, um, that word for something else, but I think they are dimensions mm. and they're kind of, uh, social cultural dimensions, uh, again, that we ascribe meaning and all this. Um, so yeah, I think like space, time, outsider, uh, you know, if you operate with those three dimensions, you can do a lot of really kind of interesting analysis just with those three th very simple things. Yeah. And so those are just a few ways into studying culture, but then there's also like, there's race and ethnicity, which is a big thing. And we'll talk about that right now with the history, um, why anthropologists are so obsessed with race. <laughs> It'll become quite clear in a sec. But there's also clearly gender. The power is a really big thing as well. And um, But time is also, it gets back to this idea of the four fields, right? Like archaeology and physical anthropology are both like concerned with the past, right? And anthropology, I think, is kind of a cool discipline because occasionally, maybe I'd say, you do have anthropologists projecting into the future as well. Like what is going to happen with this culture if X and Y and Z happen or whatever. So I really like anthropology for that. But as I said, this is just a sketch, a scratch of the surface. So let's get into the history because I think that's a lot more interesting. Yeah, let's scratch the history surface. So all the way back to like 10,000 years ago when humans were like you know, coming into contact with other groups of humans, there's always been a concern with understanding the outsiders maybe or the other people, right? Um, so when you're taking like an Anthro 101 class, they'll often like name a few notable moments in history where like say the Egyptians wrote something about culture or like the Babylonians, the Mongols used to write about culture a lot because they're conquering a lot of different cultures. <laughs> um, but more often than not, like those writings in antiquity that seem like anthropology were written by conquering forces. And they just like either wanted to understand the people um, to better exploit them, like honestly, like tax them better, more effectively, um, or for other, you know, more nefarious reasons. And then occasionally you get like just a curious, like 
scholarly type who would be like, oh, let's go like talk to these people and actually document it and have their words down and stuff and describe their clothes. Um, so I'll spare you all those little examples because uh, they're just like sort of anecdotal. Um, but um, interestingly enough, Thomas Jefferson did a really interesting pseudo-archaeology slash anthropology project when he was like just digging in his backyard on one of his plantations. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. And um, is Islamic researchers, um, they uh, wrote about culture less with this conquering mindset. It was just more like a, an academic curiosity. So I think that should just be noted. Um, so like even all the way back into this antiquity, but definitely in the, the sort of early modern history of anthropology, anthropologists have always been associated with state power. Like when, during the colonial period, uh, we were just seen as colonial agents. Even if we were going as academics, we, they thought we were like spies for the government essentially. And that's like a, so common that like every ethnography has like an more than one anecdote where the anthropologist was either being thought of as like, like being seen with suspicion or, um, like some sort of crazy, like they had a way different thought of what these people might be doing here and why. Like, why would you want to learn about me is often a uh, comment people make. Yeah, and I think uh, that's a comment, uh, you know, about the discipline of anthropology being uh, used uh, by the state. I think it's something that could be level against, if not all, most uh, academic disciplines. And I think uh, it, it speaks to the necessity of state rule to have certain types of knowledge, um, knowledge about uh, its people, uh, what would become termed knowledge of its population uh, becomes increasingly important uh, along the same lines as knowledge of the statistics of a population. So if you're able to have ethnographers, people saying that they're anthropologists going and collecting that information you know, from the state side, you kind of say, well, why wouldn't we use them? Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, that's actually a perfect little segue. Um, there's a, it's called, it was called the Bureau of American Ethnology. Um, and it had, it was founded in 1879, but it was like the first time they systematized. Um, it started with, I probably, they were like census takers, like more, it would look kind of like that, but cultural census takers, because, um, at this time in the late, 1880s or going into the 1880s, um, indigenous uh, groups were being literally just wiped out, right? And all their cultural heritage was being lost. So the American government, I think like, you know, in retrospect, they probably did um, horrible like methods and things of collecting um, artifacts and um, measuring skulls. This is when eugenics is starting to kick off. Um, and that's what we're about to talk about. Um, but in some sense, like they... I don't know if it was out of guilt, but they were like collecting it because they knew that it was being lost and that they were the ones causing it. But um, so this was the kind of environment in which early anthropologists started emerging. Before this period, it was like gentlemen academics who would just sit in their libraries and have like people out there collecting specimens and sending it to them. And then they would catalog them and, and rank them like this is more evolved than that. Um, so that's all linked to Darwin and we're about to talk about that with eugenics. But, um, uh, my point is just that like the Bureau of American Ethnology was both an evil sort of organization, but it was the first time they systematically, um, tried to document these people's cultures. And it was the first kind of employer of anthropologists. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, it's a famous case, um, you know, a lot of STS scholars go back and look at the work uh, mm -hmm. that they've done. Um, it's kind of like a turning point between, um, what you would kind of call like proto, 
uh, anthropology or proto-sociology mm. where your explorations are kind of, you know, inquiry driven uh, and inquiry as in like, I don't know what that is. That's weird. Let's go collect it mm. and have like uh, your own private collections of is a weird fetish. artifacts. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. just kind of like, uh, look at me. Uh, I'm an Esquire. I can collect weird shit yeah. uh, towards uh, what would seemingly be a, a scientific method of collecting. And I don't know if you can speak to a little bit about the development of, uh, you know, maybe not related exactly to the, to the case, but uh, it seems to me like anthropology at a certain point decides that it needs rigor or something like rigor. Yeah, and some of it comes just through trial of error, trial and error um, in the field. Like, how can we collect things, and how can we culturally appropriate more effectively? Because that's the obvious like critique. Wait, <laughs> like, culturally it's a, appropriate more effectively? Yeah, Is that what, like that's what I, people would say. The um, the anthropologists and the oh the, right, right, yeah, like yeah, a critique of yeah. what. They're, sorry, I thought like uh, sorry, like no, some no, anthropologists no. Was like I I want to learn how no. to culturally appropriate better. <laughs> that's okay. a good, really good clarification. Phil. Okay, Thank sorry. You. Um, yeah, no, so like so the the anthropologists in the BAE, it was called Bureau of American Ethnology, um, would um, develop their methodologies out in the field in the moment. And a hallmark of anthropology is that one, what we thought we knew before we entered the field uh, just gets tossed out the window. Like that's very, very common, like so common that every ethnography has to have a section about how we didn't know anything before we talked to the people. And the other is having adaptable methodologies because sometimes you go to a place and it's like, oh, I'm going to digitally record everybody and it's just a stupid example, but you're in a rainforest or something like this and your digital recorder won't work. That's a terrible example. But there's other examples where like maybe people don't want to talk to you about certain subjects and then you have to completely shift your research in another direction for towards the things they want to talk about. Because if we're talking about signification and significance that people put in their experiences, what they want to talk about is the most culturally pertinent and important things that you should document. Sometimes anthropologists will try to shoehorn um, informants' descriptions into the models that they want to argue for and use, um, but a good anthropology just goes with what the informants want to do, and you worry about organizing it later when you get back. So, okay, let's come back to yeah, the... Yeah, uh, I keep going, trying to jump ahead. Yeah, let's yeah. come back to the BAE. Uh, I just want to inter interject with uh, one little thing. Sure. Uh, the BAE kind of has this uh, nice little history uh, of uh, systematizing uh, fact-finding and artifact collecting. Uh, but it seems to me like it serves a dual purpose of also um, hardening uh, the ways in which anthropology can be done. Uh, so... In its trial and error, it does develop methods, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it says that these are the methods of anthropology. So it creates some sort of expertise in the field, right? Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is kind of like, well, if you're an anthropologist in the field, you're talking with someone, the method uh, that you arrive or that you use uh, is kind of context dependent, not mm -hmm. necessarily dependent on what uh, the expertise says it is. Yeah, and that's like a really interesting way of framing it. That's the science and technology sort of studies. Is that where that's coming from? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's really fascinating. We'll dig into that more. Um, so that's perfect for the methods. So our methods are very, like when I describe them, you're going to be like, that's broad, right? And they're broad because they're supposed to be sort of adaptable in some ways. So um, so an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, archaeology is completely different. Cultural anthropologist will leave wherever he or she is and go to another place um, and speak to other people, right? 
Um, we'll talk about my research at the end, maybe in some way. But um, that is one of the hallmarks. It's called, um, we call it cultural dislocation because you're dislocating yourself from your own culture. And that process of being like a stranger in a strange land sort of thing, to use a Heinlein uh, line, um, that is um, one of the ways that we notice, say, cultural difference. And that's a loaded term, but that's how we notice that people have um, cultural beliefs and practices that might be somewhat different than our own. And once you start noticing that, then you start documenting it. And that's how it kind of like starts. Um, the other two main um, methods of anthropology, one of them is called participant observation. Um, and that is literally you participate in what the people are doing and you observe uh, while you're, you're participating. And then you also, you can stretch that and say you're making observations of your own reflections of your own cultural experience in these new places. Um, and then the third main method of anthropology is the semi-structured interview, right? And that is literally an open-ended conversation. Like I tried to put that in my ethics forms to get like approval for research. Like I'm going to have open-ended conversations with people, but that is all the semi-structured interview is. You go in with um, like say a set of themes and maybe they come from the theories that you plan to use or what other people told you before. And then you just have a conversation. And that's why the digital recorder or the tape recorder um, or what Boaz used, which we'll talk about is the wax seal uh, things to record voices um, back in like the turn of the century. Um, all those, like being able to capture literally what they said and how they said it is really important for anthropology. Uh, but what you just said, the three things, uh, cultural dislocation, uh, participant observation, and uh, Interview. semi-structured interviews, uh, those three things can go together. They're not uh, things that need to be used uh, separately, oh. right? Okay, yeah, that's a really good point, Phil. Um, those three methods, they're always used together. Cultural dislocation obviously happens first, but um, we're always using them together, and those are the things that are adapted, right? So even cultural dislocation, as you spend more time in a place, that kind of lessens in a way, right? You feel less culturally dislocated, right? And that's the idea. Um, there's a common criticism, and per, uh, forgive the terminology here, but it's called um, going native, and some really cynical anthropologists will criticize other anthropologists for becoming too much, quote unquote, like the other people. Um, I think that's a silly critique, but we'll just kind of shelve that there. So that's a little bit of the, the theory, the methods. Um, so we should really like dig into this history now. Um, so as I mentioned, anthropology was normally done by kind of armchair scholars, gentlemen, as Phil mentioned as well, these collectors, right? And um, right in the middle of the 1800s, uh, Charles Darwin and evolutionary thinking was starting to emerge um, across the sciences, I'd say, and across the social sciences. So anthropology in this early stage was definitely um, influenced by evolutionary thought. And what happens there when you're talking about evolution and culture together is that it it kind of happens where the people would start ranking um, different cultures or different races. They say, obviously, they're going to say white people are at the top because there's white people making these claims. Um, also, in a gendered way, men are superior to women because they're all men, white men, writing these things. But they would get into this practice, heavily influenced by evolutionary thought, where you would rank these different uh, races, let's say, and categorize them and their qualities, like how good or worthwhile the various races were, right? So this is the, what makes us a postmodern discipline is that we go back and recognize this racist history. So the early history of anthropology for the first like 60 years or so was just racist 
classification schemes with two exceptions and there's a, a few more but I just wanted to mention uh, Radin, uh, R-A-D-I-N. He did the first um, sort of, that I've seen, the earliest um, transcribed interview with um, indigenous people in the, I think around Oklahoma uh, state. And um, Edward Sapir, who's a Canadian um, anthropologist, and he's the one who founded the Museum of uh, Civilization. Um, now it's the Museum of History here in Ottawa. And he did a lot of things for actually like in a non-racist way, like documenting uh, the lives of indigenous people across Canada and um, storing it. And now later, there a lot of the materials in the museum are being um, repatriated back to the communities. And you can thank Sepir for, in one way, um, you know, culturally appropriating the crap out of Canadian indigenous communities, but in another way, um, you know, keeping it safe so that they just didn't end up on the black market. So the two earliest like sort of modern anthropologist we mentioned is uh, Franz Boas. He's the American anthropologist and Bronislav Malinowski. He's uh, of Polish descent, but he um, had his whole career in Britain. Um, so I think I want to talk about Boas first and then we'll do Malinowski and then we'll get into like the 50s and 60s. Um, so uh, Franz Boas was born in 1858, uh, passed away in 1942. Um, he is of Jewish-German heritage, and that's actually important for his first research that he does. Um, his parents were like kind of, the, you know, they're described as Enlightenment parents, so they did like German Enlightenment ideals. They believed in a unified Germany and uh, secularism, despite coming from Jewish heritage. So Boas was kind of raised in this like betwixt and between sort of um, um, cultural milieu. Um, and so it kind of gave him this insider-outsider um, kind of perspective. Um, he went to America to do his uh, graduate research, and his first research was on Ellis Island. Um, because eugenics was really in vogue at the turn of the century and into the 30s, um, his first research project was measuring the skulls and the no bridge of the nose sizes of immigrants that were coming into Ellis Island. Um, and what his supervisors, I'm sure, wanted him to show is that you by through these measurements, you can um, determine the people's like, you know, potential, right, essentially, um, or their how polluted, quote unquote, they might be. Um, but what Boaz uh, determined was that um, you can't make cultural or even social um, conclusions based on people's physical race, let's say. And I'm using race as like a very specific right, term. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, so from that research, he went off and uh, uh, worked with the Inuit in, uh, in northern, I think Baffin Island was uh, his research site. Um, and in that research, he sort of further reinforced this idea of um, what we call cultural determinism. So rather than people being determined by their physical bodies, so their races or their, the size of their skull or whatever, um, they were determined by the cultural environment they lived in and the type of social upbringing. Um, and then also like it, literally environmental factors as well. So um, from his research measuring skulls, he actually looked, did a physical anthropology treatment in his cultural anthropology with the Eskimos or the Inuit, sorry, the, he calls them Eskimos, so forgive me. Um, and he said, yes, like living in a cold environment, being there for, you know, multiple generations, that does change your body shape, but it doesn't change your human potential, right? Um, so I have a couple of quotes that I wanted to um, read out. Um, 
Um, so in relation to the physical anthropology, um, Boa says, we do not discuss the anatomical, physiological, and mental characteristics of man considered as an individual, but we are interested in the diversity of these traits in groups of men found in different geographical areas and in different social classes. So that's his way of making physical anthropology more of a cultural uh, uh, pursuit. And by that, I mean like your physical body and the the environment you grew up in is just one element of your wider cultural context. Now, I'm going to uh, interject here. I've been sitting here silently uh, absorbing this kind of like a sponge. Uh, but what you just uh, read to me seems a lot like uh, Boas is advocating for a comparative method in anthropology. Mm. And early anthropology uh, was comparative. Um both Malinowski and Boaz, um, that was what it was about. It was like document this culture as much as possible and then compare it to others. Now, the difference between Malinowski and Boaz is that Malinowski would say, you need to document these, I don't know, arbitrary number, like seven elements of cultural life. So you need to talk about marriage, witchcraft, uh, I don't know, trade, and like a few others, right? And then that's how you would compare. You compare one culture's trade with another culture's trade. Whereas um, Boaz would describe, compare one culture to another. Like these people are different, not better or worse, but just different. Um, so the comparative method is valuable, but with Malinowski's approach, um, it would be like, you're almost like just boom, and just putting this like framework onto the study of a different um, culture. So say if you go work with some people who don't really trade in the way that we understand trade to be. Maybe they barter or exchange or something, or maybe they even have a marketplace or something. They don't barter. Um, so like sometimes having too rigid of a model doesn't um, lend itself to the complexity and richness of culture. Sure, but in either case, they're both comparative methods, just that one of them you're importing a framework to compare, the other one you're saying uh, the... This culture the, versus that the, culture. It's still the, the same. The comparisons yeah. aren't necessarily found in, in a structural kind of framework. Yeah. And um, the structural functionalist Malinowski and the people who came after him um, would have like a very rigid structure. And whereas like Boaz, they would have a little looser one, but they would still like Boaz and the American anthropologist would still look at the same sort of things. Like they look at men and women, they would look at youth and childhood and stuff like that. So um, I'll just say in conclusion on, on Boaz, I think uh, I got another uh, quote, but it's basically the same thing that we're not ranking people based on races. Um, both Mo uh, Malinowski and Boaz are like, consider like grandfathers of the discipline in that um, Boaz's two famous uh, students who came right after him was uh, Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict, right? Um, Ruth Benedict and Margaret Mead deserve a lot more treatment here, but um, they were both at that time, like the only time perhaps like popular anthropologists, like people outside the discipline would read it. Coming of Age in, of, uh, Coming of Age in Samoa by Margaret Mead uh, was a bestseller. Um, Ruth Benedict's uh, Chrysanthemum and the Sword was commissioned by the U.S. Army. Um, it was a, um, a study on Japan and the idea there being how can the U.S. government invade Japan uh, more effectively, like by land. Um, and like, trust your academic. Uh, she didn't actually get around to getting it published and completed until like two years after the war or something. So yeah, <laughs> I yeah. think it came out in 47. <laughs> right on time on that one. Um, so uh, we'll jump over into um, Malinowski. I will say Boaz uh, was like quite concerned with linguistics. Um, 
but um, that's enough of Boaz. Um, so as I mentioned, Malinowski was Polish, um, but he was a British national, like he was a citizen of Britain. Um, as a young man, he was on a um, one of these scientific like boat trips that they would take, like kind of like Darwin's bugle trip. Um, they were traveling down to like the South uh, Seas down around Australia and like the, what used to be called the Spice Islands, um, but like Indonesia and things like this. And um, World War One broke out, it was 1914. So being a um, Polish citizen, but like having ties to Britain, America assumed that they that he might be a spy or something. So they detained him on this island, a group of islands called the Trobriand Islands, right? And his famous um, ethnography called Argonauts of the Western, uh, Argonauts of the South Pacific, I think, West Pacific. I can't remember. Forgive me. Um, that is documenting the lives of these people, and in particular, this thing called the Kula Ring. It was like an exchange network around the different islands, and it was more than exchanging this. Uh, um, armlet of uh, shells. Um, it was more about exchanging, you know, everything from produce to uh, wives and <laughs> everything in between. So it's a very significant thing. And he kind of just did this research and kind of made his whole career off. He died relatively young for an academic and um, was about to undertake more ethnographic work, but he sort of published on um, this work with the Troperand Islanders. So that's one of the differences between American and British um, streams is that the British anthropologists and the continental anthropologists would sometimes just do like an initial research project in the beginning and then become like theorists afterwards, right? And that's where the comparative method is a little different because they're like, well, if I know trade on the Trobrian Islands, I can study trade amongst the Basque people or something like that, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. So, um, um, I think I did that. Oh, yeah. So I have a famous quote from Malinowski. It's quoted in every like intro textbook. Um, I just need to pull it up. Um, and this is the quote about going off of the veranda and undertaking field work for the first time. The anthropologist must relinquish his comfortable position in the long chair on the veranda of the missionary compound, government station, or planter's bungalow, where, armed with pencil and notebook, and at times with a whiskey and soda, he has been accustomed to collect statements from informants. He must go out into the villages and see what the natives at work in gardens, on the beach, in the jungle. He must sail with them to distant sandbanks and to foreign tribes. So Malinowski is known as the sort of creator of the modern ethnographic method. So he started participant observation, which that is right there. He's just leaving the white people and going and living in their village. Um, he is experiencing cultural dislocation, and then he's collecting data in various ways, like he would write diagrams and, and um, write down vocab lists and names of plants and animals, like any sort of ethnographic cultural data that you can accumulate. He would do these in these notebooks. Now, Malinowski, just as a complete side note, his journals are really salacious. Like, he's like, I hate these people. I can't stand it here. The mosquitoes are driving me crazy. Like, it's full on. So if anyone's interested, they can read that on the side. Um, but Malinowski is important because he started the um, ethnographic method, the modern one. And then he also, like Boaz, started this tradition of future anthropologists. So Talcott Parsons, who uh, Phil knows, and then E.E. E. Evans Pritchard is his other big person can you talk about talcott parsons at all or? uh well i just uh, like um totally I, I don't know if we need to but i want to come a little bit back to malinowski mm -hmm. and uh what you said was um i think probably accurate as to the myth of anthropology and maybe you'll get into it 
But it's this idea that you have to look else, elsewhere. Like you have to look mm-hmm. outside to be able to do these things. Yeah, yeah. And like, I, I, you know, I get that there's this, this idea of cultural, um, dislocation, dislocation uh, you know, looking outside of one's own, uh, proximity to be able to try to make sense of something that's different or, or, or whatever. Uh, but I think there's a lot of things that are really close to us that could benefit from the ethnographic gaze. Um, so I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not so sure if we need to travel to exotic places and go fuck around in other people's uh, backyards. And that is totally modern anthropology now. Like I, um, was part of a group in AAA called the, um, Society for the Anthropology of North America. And it's like North American anthropologists doing research on North America. Um, so, and then my research, of course, my master's research was all about concussions and I'm a concussion sufferer. So that's something definitely we'll dig into more on like maybe an existentialism uh, podcast, but it's definitely like what we call it in anthropology is creating ethnographic distance. So sometimes you're working within a community that is your own or a culture that's your own and you have to manufacture ethnographic distance. So that was like the premise of my method section in my dissertation actually is how did I find ways to artificially create this fake distance. And then I realized at the end, spoiler alert, um, you don't really need to. And it's actually better to know a lot about something. <laughs> so um, that was my conclusion. Um, so Boaz and Malinowski, um, I can get into the criticisms of both, but um, a big one was like ahistorical approaches in Malinowski and um, Boaz... Uh, is often, I don't know, criticized for having like racially insensitive um, depictions of other people. And they also, um, the American anthropologists would get criticized for um, only highlighting the um, salacious or interesting stuff, just try to sell more books, um, especially with like Mead and Benedict. That was a charge that was placed against them pretty firmly. So we're going to jump ahead like 30 years and get into the 50s and 60s um, just to move us along. So Levi Strauss um, was is the key figure who created this next sort of like transition in uh, the discipline. Um, he was really big on the continent in Europe, but he also came over like came over like his ideas came over to North America. So there's a healthy branch of social anthropologists, and that's what he kind of coined within North America as well. So this is where you start seeing the erosion of the disciplinary boundaries because there was also people who were like cultural anthropologists like Boaz who were starting to adopt some more structuralist uh, stuff in their work and they're doing this hybrid sort of model so um, in the Boaz was active in the 50s and 60s but he lived a long life like and he continued to write well into his like 80s I believe um, so he, he's voluminous um, and he was was known as um, coining the field of structuralism in anthropology um, I have a couple of quotes from him um, but basically they were very much interested in cross-cultural comparisons. Um, oftentimes, they are criticized for having very rigid models and things like this, and also criticized for not paying enough attention to history and how things change over time because they're too rigid. That's like the textbook classic critiques of them. But what um, structuralists brought back into anthropology was more rigor and more like order almost to our, because like when you read Geertz, for example, later, um, it's, it's all over the place. And sometimes when I describe anthropology, it's all over the place. So sometimes it's helpful to have something like structuralism to give your research some structure, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think there's various strands of structuralism, 
And I think it goes more than just the word structure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I think uh, a big tenet of structuralism is a historic understanding of processes. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite certain that the criticism that it's ahistorical is accurate. Yeah. Uh, and I that's think, why I'm saying they're, these are like textbook sort of criticisms because I don't believe that. And I like, I have a number of Levi Strauss's books on my bookshelves and you read them and they're, they're fabulous, right? But it's just a different kind of style, right? And I think oftentimes when some people in the discipline see their disciplinary boundaries crumbling a little bit or saying this other, maybe this new field is getting a little bit more popular, is becoming more in vogue. Um, sometimes the criticisms are not the most fair. Like sometimes they're kind of petty. Yeah, uh, I think... Because like I, I'm saying these are the textbook criticisms, but I don't necessarily agree with them either. You know, like all structuralism is not ahistoric, right? No, I think structuralism at its base requires a historic purview. The the Mm -hmm. difference between, um, you know, what structuralism starts as is an understanding that there are either agency or social structural um, institutions uh, that uh, provide opportunities or limits to human behavior. So to be able to make that claim, one needs to understand the history of the opportunities or limits to human behavior. And when you look at uh, what Levis Strauss was doing was to say, well, it's not only things like the state, it's not only things like um, the legal system, it's also things like linguistics. Uh, and ling- like, you know, linguistically speaking, uh, there are opportunities and there are limits uh, to how, you know, we act or react. Yes. And it's, um, I love that you said act or react right at the end, because that is the perfect tie into my quote. Um, so structuralism can really be best defined as um, two things in relation to each other, right? So act and react is a perfect example. I have a quote from Levi-Strauss's obituary, and it kind of summarizes um, his own perspective of what he was trying to say throughout his life. And also kind of answer the criticisms that he's, he always got. Like, this guy got like 40, 50 years of criticism. Like, he lived to be like 90, so he yeah, heard it, yeah. right? Yeah. And it got to a point when he passed away that the whole discipline had gone so far in a different direction that he's like, here in his obituary, this is what he said. The idea behind structuralism is that there are things we may not know, but we can learn how they are related to each other. This has been used by science since it existed and can be extended to a few other studies, linguistics and mythology, but certainly not to everything. The speculative structures are made to be broken. There is not one of them that can be can hope to last more than a few decades or at most a century or two. Kind of thinking highly of himself there, I think, a century or two, but it's interesting, like, the idea of structuralism is how things are related to each other. Um, that is like the basis of science, right? Um, his two fields that he was most interested in were linguistics and mythology, right? And he's saying that using structuralism to study those two things, it actually makes a lot of sense. But you can't use it to study every single aspect of culture studies. And one of the main critiques of Levi-Strauss was that he was universalistic. He's, people said that he was putting forth a model that you should be able to adapt anywhere and everywhere and at any time as well in the past or the future. Um, And what he's saying there in his obituary is that, one, there's a limit to my own methods. Two, sometimes an entire method and theoretical framework can get completely just thrown out the window, right? And more often than not, they just don't last. Like, and then you start looking at them as historical things. And what I would argue at the end is that 
it's like a return to structure is happening, right? Because we had in anthropology like 30 years of postmodern anthropology, which was very like unconnected and loose. And you start seeing modern anthropologists now, like today in like the 2010s, they're starting to do like a hybrid approach again, where it's like structure and agency to working together. Yeah. All right. So enough about Strauss. Uh, who else do you have for us? Uh, if you have anybody. Okay. So both who kicked off the last turn that we'll talk about, uh, postmodernism and the linguistic turn it's called in American anthropology is Clifford Geertz. Um, his last name is pronounced or spelled G. E-E-R-T-Z. Um, and he came from like the lit literary studies fields. Um, and he's very, obviously very interested in linguistics, right? And then he came to anthropology, I, I believe in like grad school, maybe for his PhD, he did his first ethnography. Um, so Geertz is known as like one of the best writers in anthropology, right? Highly quotable. And there's a ton of people, a ton of quotes you can use. Um, he had his real like heyday in the 70s. And then he inspired this whole generation of postmodern anthropologists in the 80s and 90s. Um, he, uh, let's see. Um, so Geertz's whole thing was to describe things complexly, complexedly, like to describe things in a complex way. Right. So one of his most famous um, examples is actually taken from another um, example used by someone in the 1700s, but um, it's called the wink and the twitch. Right. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So what he's trying to ask is what is the meaning between a wink and what is the meaning between a twitch and how is it contextually determined? So I have a little uh, quotey poo here for you. Um, so. So between the difference between the wink and the twitch. Yet the difference, however unphotographable, unphotographable <laughs> between a twitch and a wink is vast. As anyone unfortunate enough to have had the first taken for the second knows. The winker is communicating and indeed communicating in a quite precise and special way. One, deliberately. Two, to someone in particular. Three, to impart a particular message. Four, according to a socially established code. And five, without cognizance of the rest of the company. So that was in Thick Description, his famous um, account. And right there, it's just an eye movement can be described in a lot of detail, those five different ways, and a lot of description, right? So he's using the wink or the twitch as um, kind of like a vehicle in which to understand like cultural intentionality. Yeah, and I think the more profound claim um, that Gertz is making is that communication is something that is done with intention. So the wink is intentional and the twitch isn't. Yeah, for sure. And um, it, it is all about intentionality, right? And the only way to, like sometimes anthropologists and in the postmodern period, we got criticized for, they thought that we were proposing that we were mind readers. Like, let me tell you what the so-called quote-unquote native believes and thinks and feels, right? And just like the critiques of structuralism, I think that's like an unvalid critique. But what Geertz is specifically um, keen into here is that it's not our descriptions of events. Uh, it was like that quote I read earlier is the descriptions of the descriptor of the descriptor, right? Like, so what we're trying to do in anthropology is not describe like all the things that we see as like the highbrow anthropologist. That's why we have the semi-structured interview. That's actually used to confirm these these kind of crappy observations that we make as anthropologists or not from these places. Yeah, I don't agree with that, uh, def like that uh, defense of it, but um, okay. Okay, so valid, but here's what Geertz has to say. I got one last quote and then we'll get into postmodernity. 
Um, he says, we are not, or at least I am not, seeking either to become natives, a compromised word in any case, or to mimic them. Only romantics or spies would seem to find point in that. We are seeking in the widest sense of the term, in which to encompass very much more than talk, to converse with them. A matter a great deal more difficult and not only with strangers than is commonly recognized. If speaking for someone else seems to be a mysterious process, Stanley Cavill has remarked, that may be because speaking to someone does not seem mysterious enough. Looked at this way, the aim of anthropology is the enlargement of the universe of human discourse. So that's what Gears has to say on speaking for other people. Okay. So... That's quite more radical than, like, we did have a problem, we do have a problem, so probably still in anthropology of, it's called ethnographic authority. It's this idea that we as anthropologists know best and can describe better than the, the sort of locals, right? And this is a, a common critique of um, some ethnographies, especially the older, older ones. So what Geertz is really important in doing is kicking off the postmodern turn. It's kind of dismantling this. And he was helpful because he was the person who kind of educated the anthropologists who would have to go and defend themselves in the 80s and 90s because the postmodern turn was really instigated by a strong and fervent critique from like the English departments of universities about anthropology from a discourse perspective. The idea that we as anthropologists were proposing to go and speak for other people. Yeah, I think it probably corresponded with an enlargening of the epistemological and ontological realities of anthropology as well. Mm. So uh, anthropologists started looking and paying attention to different things, an expanded set of things such as discourse, and treating discourse in a different way. So what someone says uh, isn't necessarily just uh, you know a rendition of the exact uh, communicative mm. uh, process, but it has uh, some sort of underlying structure uh, that can be understood or it's related to something else or, um, you know, et cetera. And it was also who the anthropologists were. Like in the 70s and 80s, there was much more, uh, many more female anthropologists. Anthropology is always like compared to others have done a decent job of having uh, female faculty members and things, but there was a lot more in the 80s, like many other sectors of the economy, uh, women were entering the field. So that's one new epistemological, ontological voice coming into the scene, like in our discipline. Um, and another is that um, we were starting to get anthropologists from different parts of the world rather than people born and raised in like North America or Britain or France. Uh, we were getting people from say, former Soviet countries in uh, Eastern Europe or uh, Africa, like the, the colonial South or whatever. Um, so who the anthropologists were, were changing. So that also changes the discipline. But um, there was a very direct and hard criticism in the late 70s on anthropology saying that we are not in a position um, because of our colonial past, um, not just as anthropologists, but just as people from North America. Um, we are not... Um, we're not kind of able or we should not be able to speak for colonial others, right? I mean, we've been doing that for long enough, right? So that's where it started. And then it, as academic debates go, it just kind of spiraled from there. There's a very famous book that's kind of the response of um, anthropologists to these critiques, and it's called Writing Culture, and it's published in 1986. And it's kind of the sort of book that every um, grad school student should read in anthropology. Um one of my favorite theorists and anthropologists is Sherry Ortner, and she has a very famous um, essay that she published in 1984. It was actually her um, 
PhD comps. It was the theory section of her comps. Um, and it's about how agency comes back and um, kind of disrupts the structuralism that was happening. And it's like a historical theoretical reading. And it's um, the clearest, most understandable history of anthropology that like I've ever read. So Sherry Ortner, O-R-T-N-E-R, 1984, and she's still with us and she's still active and she's great. I saw her at a conference recently. Um, and then um, one kind of final anthropologist I want to talk, uh, two actually, and then we'll wrap up and talk about modern anthropology, um, Nancy Shepard Hughes. Um, she's a American anthropologist who did research uh, for her PhD in um, Ireland and uh, found like the smallest, uh, in her own words, the smallest, most out of the way kind of village um, that she can find and, uh, and kind of did her ethnography there. Her conclusions were that um, basically these families in the small village would encourage their eldest um, sons to go out into the world to go make money and they'd be like, they'd build them up like emotionally and like, you can do it, you can do anything. And then the youngest son they would just tear them down emotionally so that they wouldn't have the self-confidence. This was our conclusion. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, they wouldn't have the self-confidence to leave, right? So they'd tear them down emotionally. Oh, like to stay behind on the... Yes, to, right? so that they can take care of the property and take care of the parents when they get older, right? Um, that, that, that seems like that's what happens in any farming family, though. I, maybe, right? And yeah. that's this, this is the anthropology in it. So she yeah. writes her um, ethnography like a good little PhD student. And um, it got picked up as she's like a really good anthropologist and like great writer. So it got picked up, turned into a book. And then a couple of newspaper articles were written about it. And then those articles got and found their way back to Ireland. Because it's Ireland, like you know, it's they'll they'll get they'll find out, and uh, the people read about these articles, and then they read the, her book, and they were like, uh, "Excuse me," and they demanded like they really kicked up a stink, and this is in like the early '80s. They really kicked up a stink, and she had to go back to her uh, the village, her field site, and kind of account for herself. And it was like she wrote this amazing essay about going back to the field and accounting for yourself, which is like something that we as anthropologists in the past before this would never have done. We go to a field site, collect all our data, go back to our libraries, write it up, and they'll never see us again. They'll never read right, it. Right. It's in English. They can't read but it. But she English. got called out on her shit. She got called out, yeah, because these people are Irish. They can read it. <laughs> it's like oh, one of, of those course, things. Yeah. So like she kind of got caught with her pants down. But then, um, you know, as a champ, like she went back and talked to them, and then she wrote a really interesting methods piece about that. Um, so that's one of my favorite sort of anecdotes. And then <clears throat> the anthropologist that single-handedly most influenced me um, and continues to do so is Renato Rizaldo. And I have his famous quote um, from his book, uh, um, A Headhunter's Range. Uh, rage. Um, he was working in the Philippines with um, people who used to be headhunters, like even as early as like the 50s, um, but it had to stop the practice because of a state law. Um, and so he wanted to, with his wife, Michelle, um, their husband-wife anthropology team, they went to study how this change in state law affects these people's culture, essentially, right? And I'll spare you all the details, but there's this one amazing quote from this, uh, from this book. Um, in 1981, Michelle Rosaldo and I began field research among the, uh, in the northern Luzon, Philippines. On October 11th of that year, she was walking along a trail with two companions when she lost her footing and fell to her death some 65 feet down a sheer precipice um, into a shallow river below. Immediately on finding her body, I became enraged. How could she abandon me? How could she have been so stupid as to fall? I tried to cry, I sobbed, but rage blocked the tears. Less than a month later, I described this moment in my journal. I felt like a nightmare. 
It felt like in a nightmare, the whole world around me expanding and contracting, visually and viscerally heaving. Going down, I find a group of men, maybe seven or eight, standing still, silent, and I heave and sob, but no tears. An earlier experience on the fourth anniversary of my brother's death had taught me to recognize heaving sobs without tears as a form of anger. So his big conclusion from his research, and he didn't understand it until Michelle fell to her death, was that when you love somebody very much and they die, um, you're filled with, with rage rather than sadness. And he saw that rage amongst his informants when they would lose somebody. Oh, okay. There's the connection. So it was, Rosaldo is the one who taught me reflexivity. The idea that you can go off of your own experience for like academic purposes and use that constructively because I feel like that's what he, one of the ways he grieved was to go back into his research and and connect. So that kind of takes us all the way through. That takes us up to modern anthropology. So Phil, Ask me some questions, man, because I've been talking for a while. Uh, well, uh, I think uh, one of the questions that is forefront in uh, my mind, uh, beyond uh, you know the theoretical, methodological implications of some of the stuff that you've laid out for us, is um, you know right off the top, what does an anthropologist do? Uh, like you know, besides research, uh, publish, write, uh, teach. Uh, so, like, how how can we apply anthropology? So. Anthropology, in some sense, is like, from an academic perspective, is always applied because you're applying methodology to a field site, blah, blah, blah. But that's not what you're getting at. You're like, how can we use anthropology to like make positive change in the world or do better or help the people that we work with? Because honestly, man, like for 100 years and probably still now, anthropologists, without intending to, have kind of pride on impoverished people. Like we go for some reason to like, poor places and less developed places. Um, I don't know why out of a morbid curiosity, but it's been that way for a long time. And now in the last, like, say, I'd say like since the nineties, maybe anthropologists have been like, how can I directly help these people? We used to be able to, it seems, um, get away with saying like, oh, we paid some remittance payments. Like, oh, come talk to me. I'll give you like five bucks or whatever. And like, oh, that helps them. Or like, I gave them a can of beans, like to come talk to me. And isn't that great? Like, that's how they would like sort of sleep like at night. And now it's like a lot more directly like development projects. So um, anthropologists will go into a situation with a development project in mind. Um, Like, how can we help people like, I don't know, dig wells more effectively? Like, and they'll be like, the goal is to dig a well, but we need to understand the local conditions so that we can dig more wells more effectively. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of critiques of those sorts of development projects. Um, I'd say so, I'd say so for S- one who is sponsoring them, right? That's yeah. An one. SDS conference a few years ago, uh, there was a, um, a team of anthropologists who were kind of telling their story about going into a small town development project. They were backed by big business. They got their heads chewed off. Um, mm. you know, first of all, the research was shit. It really was because when you're financed by a private corporation, uh, really it's the bottom line. So their findings uh, all nicely correlated into what the company's uh, product uh, marketing, you know, strategy was. Um, But when I say applied, so I think like there is a notion, uh, there is a, a, a certain perception that the applied field or the appliedness of a certain field, uh, leads to good. But what I'm saying is if you went out onto the street 
where would you find anthropologists? Oh, okay. Um, do you mean like in the so-called real world, not at, like affiliated with research institutions and things like this? Like what do anthropologists who are not working for a university do? Yeah, or yeah. like, sure, let's start there. Yeah. Okay, we'll start there. And then I, I think I know what you're getting at finally. Sorry, man. Um, yeah, no, so anthropologists, if it's really... A, <laughs> It's really a question of selling out and how much you want to sell out, man. Because like my research in um, medical anthropology, like I could go and get a job with like pharmaceutical companies or something right now and make it good money. Or you can do something that's a little bit more noble and look at like health outcomes, like public health sort of research, right? And whether that's working with uh, within governments or some people will work for private corporations and there's... You're definitely like itching at that lefty bias that is uh, is in some of the social sciences. It's definitely in anthropology where if we're at a conference and someone is doing participant action research, which PAR is what it's normally called in anthropology, where you're, um, you know, you're giving your participants, quote unquote, uh, more power and uh, agency to act. And, and like, how do you want the research to go? And what do you want out of us? And like, do you want a well or do you want a new whatever wall for your house. Um, like, so you're kind of giving agency to the informants, but um, like, I don't know. It, it's sort of one of these things that like, when you start taking money for the work, like, I guess you're a professional anthropologist, but like, are you doing academic work anymore? Or is it like corporate work? You know, I, I don't know. It's, it's a tough one. And a lot of the times it's those sort of, values and morals that, um, you know, recent grad students might have, or people who have been trying to get into a teaching position for a while, um, they, they might, you know, they really hold on to that idea of not selling out like hard. So like anthropologists are out there doing interesting cultural work and like, you know, media and sales and marketing and, and pharmaceutical companies and, and things like this. And also like a huge one, like, but like it, you don't hear about it as much because I don't think they're that proud, depending on what they're doing, that proud of what they're doing with their research. Because a lot of times anthropologists want to do anthropology, man. And like, we're like scientists, like anyone else. We're like, we do the research and then what happens to it afterwards is like supposed to not be in our realm. So something I did forget to say, and I, it would be really, I would have to write in the corrections section. Um, when anthropologists go in the field, and this has been this way all the way into the past, uh, to Boaz and Malinowski, um, we try our best and, and take measures to protect um, uh, informants' identities and the locations of where we do our research. Um, simple fact, because if people know that you're going to do that, um, they're more likely to talk to you. But also because um, that way they'll be able to open up. But if they have a fear of reprisal, um, then they won't talk to you. And that's why this sort of thought that we're from government agents is so strong because it seems like that's what we're doing where it seems like we're getting information so we can exploit people. So anthropology, anthropologists are very sensitive about having their work exploit people, I think is really what it boils down to. That long-winded response is, boils down to that. Um, okay, so my next kind of set of questions, uh, I think, uh, is going to be leveled at... Um, Forms of anthropological work um, that resemble or take on uh, the oh, stance yeah, that non-humans uh, need to be included into the definition of culture. Okay. So when you look at someone I like... I totally didn't think you are going to go in that direction, Phil. That's awesome. I love your curveballs, man. Go for it. 
So when you look at someone like Bruno Latour, uh, who is an anthropologist, uh, who kind of shepherds in, you know, partly responsible for shepherding in a new ontological and epistemological framework in the social sciences, uh, who comes out and says, well, you know, all, all history to date has been the history of humans, uh, but why not do a history of non-humans because they were there and they were just as important. Um, so have you seen a, a shift uh, in recent anth- anthropolo- anth- you know, anthropological work, anthropologies, uh, towards the non-human or incorporating or broadening that definition uh, that you gave us right at the beginning, uh, human culture. Human culture. Yeah, so I'm a little old school, and I'll explain what I mean by that after. But um, yes, definitely there is a shift in anthropology and across the social sciences, I think would be fair to say, to certain degrees, depending on what uh, branch you're in, of giving account to non-human actors. And by that we mean either like non-human animals or um, environments. Um, so like, you know, I'm looking out your window, trees and grass and sky and stuff like this, right? And what Latour is arguing is that we um, have only have a history of humans, right? And I'm old school in the sense that like, it's weird because I, I I hear Latour and I think there should be more and I find that research very fascinating. But I think that anthropology is should be restricted to humans interaction with animals environment like i don't think animals environment are human or human like even like i'm very cautious of anthropomorphizing nature yeah that's not what the tour is or giving agency nature oh no i'm not saying he is but that's um when you read some of the work that comes out like it's almost like it degrees between that is whether it's like my extent which is like way at the extreme of like it's humans interacting with the natural world and animals or some people i've seen research where it's like they full-on anthropomorphize like a birch tree or whatever you know and now i got yeah i mean there's crappy research like there's crappy anthropologists there's shitty research um but i think what latour is trying to say is that um the non-humans have always been at the center of what we call human culture. Um, so why not pay attention to them ontologically? So, for example, uh, while researching uh, Aboriginal peoples who are trying to protect a river, really what they're doing is they're a spokesperson for the river. The issue uh, revolves around the rights of a human to have access to clean water, but also that wildlife downstream require access to that water. So therefore, there's an anthropomorphized system of rights that get imposed on on, uh, animals by humans, but the humans are the spokespeople for those animals and the river. So at the center of your study is a river and some animals. Those are non-human elements. But yet, the way that that history gets written up is as if it's as if the humans are much so much more important than mm. these other things, right? Mm. So what Latour is advocating like privileging for... privileging the human. Yes. Yeah. So, well, that's exactly the the, the language that L- Latour oh, uses, yeah. right? Oh, so, okay, like, we privilege the human and all these yeah. interactions that we have. The definition of anthropology privileges the human, human culture, uh, and the systems of knowledge that we have privileges the human. So mm. why not start uh, unprivilegizing, if that's a word, the human? Because... So in our very name of our discipline, anthropology, anthro means like man, but like human, right? Um, uh, so a study, apology, study of human, right? And so I would go, this is the extent I'd go with Latour, as giving a privilege of like a 50-50 almost. Like um, it's an interaction, right? It's not 
man dominating nature or whatever. It's like an interaction between the two. So I'd go like a half and half. But I don't think you can go so far with privileging nature um, by investing them with human qualities. Like nature is... No, it has nothing to do with investing anybody with qualities. But nature is communicating with us. Nature is a thing that is created by... Nature is an object? uh, No, nature is a thing uh, that exists. Uh, No, it becomes an object once we assign meaning to it. Mm -hmm. So it's a thing that's out there. Uh, The fact that we even have a label for it means that a human has represented it in a certain way. And then that has meaning and it has history and that has uh, effect, right? Uh, But that can be anything. So if we don't know of a new sea creature that lives, uh, you know, 40,000 leagues under the sea, is that the name of the, yeah. Uh, And then, so we don't know what's there. It's not advocated for, it doesn't have a voice. uh, It doesn't have a history, but as soon as it gets discovered, the act of discovery uh, privileges the human A who discovered it, B, the representations of it. So something that was, you know, I don't know, dark and mysterious or whatever. So the, the forms of culture that you've said are so central to the discipline emerge out of objects all the time. Then what about, how can you describe nature without using linguistics and, and communication and writing about it or even videotaping it? Those are all forms of communication. So right there from the start point, if us humans want to write about nature, we're, we're already gone. We're already like not anthropomorphizing it, but we're like discovering nature with our words, just like the sea creature under many of those leaks under the sea. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the point. Like it's always that way then. But like, I don't. But I think recognizing it. Recognizing, is, yeah, is, for is sure. The, is, is... But like Boaz recognized the environment, right? Like all anthropologists, I wrote down here, um, Anna Singh for a, a contemporary one. She's one of the better uh, writing anthropologists out there right now. Um, her, she has a few books, but her big one is uh, called uh, Friction. And it's this idea of um, various elements of the environment coming up in contact with each other and causing friction, whether they're human, nature, or animal, or, or river, or whatever, like anything, um, causing friction. And then where that friction happens, that's where cultural definitions and defining happens. Yeah, see, that's giving agency to non-humans. Yeah. That's but, not what the But no, uh, see, he, uh, Anna Singh is saying that um, it's the humans who invest the meaning, not nature. We put meaning in. It's That's the direction. And that's where I would have to stay. All right. Personally. But I mean, this Do you is... Do have anything else? It's going to turn before into like a AAA go down, panel. <laughs> before we go down the rabbit hole of humans versus non-humans... Do you have anything else to add to this? There's Matt? a ton more to add, but I'll save you all because I've been blabbering on too long. This has been an amazing episode. Uh, has I it? Because I can't even remember what I said. <laughs> uh, it's been fantastic. Uh, Matt, thank you for that overview yeah, thanks, of Phil. anthropology. Uh, you've, you you hit on a lot of uh, very key things, a lot of contentious things. Uh, you've given us a nice, uh, I think I called it a, a concise summary. Uh, I think if someone uh, didn't know what anthropology was, picked up this podcast, listened to you uh, talk and ramble at times. Uh, they'd come out uh, at the end with a much uh, better, more informed grasp of the discipline. So I want to thank you for that. Well, thanks for producing this podcast, Phil. I really appreciate it too. Well, we, we co-produce. We, we're, co-produce. We're, we're friends in this. Let's not forget that. Um, Dialectically. If, if you have uh, questions, comments, concerns, or considerations, uh, 
send it to us. We are on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes. We are on Stitcher. We are on Google Play on your podcatcher of choice. And uh, Matt and I have been talking about this, but we will add uh, a special slideshow uh, for this episode uh, on the additions and corrections page of the website. So make sure to check that out. And uh, we have already posted one for the smallpox episode, a little slideshow that Matt put together. So thank you again. And uh, we'll be back after the break. Thanks for hanging in there. Hey everyone, welcome back. It's uh, Phil and Matt here. Uh, we have some recommendations for you. And I look over and Matt has his laptop open. It seems like he has a podcatcher to open on his phone. I'm going to venture that he's going to recommend a podcast. Yeah, uh, very intuitive, Phil. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it is a podcast. Uh, it's called Sick Boy. Um, Evan, uh, past guest, recommended this uh, to me. I didn't. I thought he recommended it on the podcast, but I think it was outside when we were uh, heading okay. out. Um, so it's called Sick Boy. And it's um, produced, made, hosted by uh, three friends who all have chronic illnesses of some sort. And they are, I believe they're headquartered out of Toronto now. Um, but they grew up together and you can tell they, uh, they have really good banter. And then they have a uh, guest on every week who has a different kind of chronic illness or um, addiction. There's uh, one um, that I'm looking forward to listening to, actually. It's a, a person who is addicted to, uh, to meth. Um, who was also a stockbroker. Okay. So that's pretty cool. Um, the episode that really got me going was um, the one on migraines. Uh, they had a migraine sufferer on, and it was really interesting to hear a lot of the symptoms that I experienced being described by somebody else, and more so the ramifications this had on her, like social life and, you know, just her ability to go out at night and have good relationships. Uh, so how long do the episodes run approximately? Um, they're good. They're a good chunk, um, which I think is really noble of them because they're chronic pain sufferers themselves or chronic illness sufferers. They know that people like us, um, don't get many platforms to express ourselves and um, say what's on our mind and what we're feeling. So they give their guests like a solid, like hour 15, hour and 40, um, like a long interview. And, but the thing I love about it is, um, Something else I've learned about being someone with a chronic illness is the dark humor that you have. Yeah. Like this podcast is hilarious. Like I was laughing out loud and at a couple of times like choked up on the migraine one a little bit because it like really hit close to homes. But it's fun because they know that um, you have to find humor in pain sometimes. Great. Highly recommend it. It's called Sick Boy. Sick Boy. You can find that on the Podbean uh, app? I think so. And uh, we'll also have a link at the bottom of the show notes. Perfect. Uh, my recommendation for today is an oldie but a goodie. Uh, it is uh, The Telling Room, uh, a tale of love, betrayal, revenge, and the world's greatest piece of cheese. Uh, that is by Michael Paternini. Uh, Michael Paternini is also the best selling author of Driving with, uh, or Driving Mr. Albert. And that's the book uh, where he recounts uh, driving across the United States with Albert Einstein's brain. Uh, 
Oh, I, I've actually heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this book, uh, The Telling Room, uh, brings Paternini to the small village of Guzman, Spain, uh, in a cave dug uh, out on the side of a hillside on the edge of town. Uh, and basically he goes back to his childhood and finds, uh, remembers the story about the very expensive piece of cheese. And then uh, later in life as a journalist, um, tries to track it down. What is this cheese? Where does it come from? What is the myth behind the cheese? Uh, so he goes all the way to Spain. He gets so wrapped up in the story uh, that his family moves to Spain. They spend some time there. He can't finish the book. Extension after extension after extension. <laughs> really? So it's actually a book about procrastination? <laughs> it's It definitely tells you what procrastination can do. And if it's any indicator that a good procrastinator can produce a good book, uh, it is phenomenal. I'm the best. I want to be the best procrastinator ever. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, so it's uh, funny. It's touching. Um, you know, it's an easy read. Uh, I think I read it in maybe a night or two just because it was a page turner for me. Does it get into like the history of Spain? It well? does. Yeah. So it covers a little bit of the history of Spain um, and why I think I picked it up off my bookshelf to read, I think for the f third time now, maybe fourth, is um, I think we're going to start to put together a little episode with uh, probably Evan as a return uh, guest on uh, the Spanish Civil War. So uh, I wanted to read one of you know, one of Paternini's books. I just find him really fascinating the way he writes mm. uh, to get back into the mood of Spain. Oh, that's really cool. That sounds interesting, man. I might have to give it a read after you're done. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, and if you would like to know more about our recommendations or anything that you've heard on the show, you can find us on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, your podcatcher of choice. Make sure to leave us some uh, ratings and reviews. Send us your comments. Tell us what we're doing right, what we're not doing right. Uh, you know, what Matt missed in his episode on anthropology. Also go see the corrections and additions. There'll be many additions. I missed a lot. Great. Uh, thanks for tuning in with us again on our show. Really appreciate all of you. Uh, and see you next time. Hopefully talk to you all soon.